show you just how spiritual I, I really am, um, I've memorized my text this morning, um, and, and, and here it is. Are you ready? Um, by faith, Isaac invokes future blessings on Jacob and Esau. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. That's my text. It's verse 20 of Hebrews chapter 11. And some of you may be wondering, um, how is he ever going to preach a sermon on one verse of 10 words? Well, you must be new to these parts. Um, <laughs> a fewness of words has never, has never stopped me yet. And um, this, this passage is really not that difficult to do because you really have access to the whole Old Testament history behind uh, verse 20 here. I, I've, I've told you that Hebrews 11 is basically a brief survey of the Old Testament. And so what we're going to do is really draw, I mean, he alludes to an event in, in Genesis, and we're going to go back to Genesis and take a look at it. So it's not really like I'm preaching from 10 words. It's, preaching, it's like I'm preaching from several chapters uh, from the Old Testament. So no, no big deal. Um, the first thing I want to do is, is point this out to you. If you'll notice in verses 20, 21, and 22, this section of Hebrews 11, all three of these, these verses have something in common. The, the author of Hebrews is referring to an event that took place at death, or at least close to death. Look at verse 21. By faith, Jacob, when dying. Look at verse 22. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life. Well, uh, it's specifically mentioned there, but in our text, this blessing thing that is being mentioned, invoking future blessing, took place at the end of uh, Isaac's life, or at least what he thought was at the end of his life. So, uh, three events, or, or three men, three heroes for Judaism, and the events that are pointed to are events that took place at their death or dying or at least close to it now why 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 would you think that kind of emphasis would be made i i could think of several reasons but i i'm pretty sure of one but let me mention uh, for, first of all guys the words of a dying man are, are are usually highly valued in a in a court of law not to say that any of this is a court of law but courts know that people don't talk nonsense at their deaths. They usually um, aren't cracking jokes while they're dying and are usually speaking the truth. And they're speaking the truth that they consider to be the most important and the most needed and the most urgent. So these things are the most needed, the most urgent truths by men who are dying. Secondly, the end of life for all of us brings a... Um, um, an, an end to our own self-deception, an, an end to this false bravado and false assurance. That all evaporates. And, and in our dying, we really get to see who we really are. Well, in these three instances, you get a chance to see who these men really are. And we'll get the same chance with you and with me. A third possible reason is 
um, the author may be assuring his audience, his readers, that God will not desert them in, in these moments where the grace to believe is needed the most. Come with me sometimes, ladies and gentlemen, where the death rattle has already begun. And watch how difficult it is. And so one of the assurances is that God will not desert us when, when the moment of the need for grace to believe is the most urgent. But fourthly and finally, I think the real reason behind this, or the biggest reason behind this, um, is that I've told you before that the audience to which the author writes is an audience that's thinking about giving up. Persecution has arisen, and they're thinking, I've had enough of this, and I know how to stop it. I'm leaving. I'm getting out of this. And so he mentions three of their heroes, three men that they immediately knew, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. And what he tells them is, your heroes didn't give up. They made it to the end. They didn't quit. They made it to the finish line, and so must you. Guys, perseverance is valued in heaven, and I, and I think sometimes we're very poor judges of what, what delights God the most. Well, let me tell you something that delights God. A life lived faithfully to the end. And um, that's what he's trying to tell his audience. And he's trying to tell us that as well. Now, so that, that's just an observation that I wanted you to see about these, three, these next three men that are gonna, we're going to look at. Um, but secondly, or the, the second point I want you to see is this, out of the text. I'm going to quote my, verse one more, the, my text one more time. Here it is. Here's my text. By faith... Isaac invoked future blessings for Esau and Jacob. Does your text say that? It does not. It doesn't say that. <laughs> Here's what it says. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings for Jacob and Esau. Not Esau and Jacob, Jacob and Esau. Do you see what has happened here, ladies and gentlemen? The author of Hebrews has moved Jacob the younger in front of Esau the older. <clears throat> Pardon me. Which, by the way, is exactly what God had said to their mother, Rebecca, when they were still in the womb. If you want to look, it's Genesis 25, verse 23. Um, Rebecca is the mama. She's still pregnant. She's carrying a set of twins, the first recorded set of twins. And um, God comes to mama while she's pregnant with the kids in her womb, and he says this, verse 23, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. And that, my friends, is a Jewish scandal. 
Because, gang, it reverses the age-old, commonly accepted, conventional laws of primogenitor. <clears throat> and you know what primogenitor is, don't you? Primogenitor is simply, uh, or simply said is, the oldest gets everything. And unless you think that's some kind of archaic, ancient, uh, unintelligent uh, uh, custom... Oh, no, it's very practical, and here's why. Folks, a family's position, their influence, their, their status in the community was tied to their estate. And if you had 11 sons and you divided them up equally among all 11 of them, you took your estate and you, you reduced it down to 111th. We couldn't have that. So the oldest always got everything. That's the law of primogenitor. And the entire culture worked like that. But God doesn't. God chooses to overturn all of the ways that man thinks things ought to be done. And he chooses to establish his covenant with Jacob, the younger, not the older. In terms of spiritual things, it's the younger who's going to get everything. Everything. And ladies and gentlemen, the story of how God moves the younger in front of the older the story of how God moves Jacob in front of Esau is absolutely fascinating. Guys, um, it's in Genesis 27. Do you remember it? You, you, you might want to take a look at it. Genesis 27. It's, um, it's a scheme. You, if you were raised in the church, you remember this story. It's a scheme hatched by Mama, Rebecca. Because her favorite was Jacob and Isaac's favorite was Esau. And so, Rebecca hatches this scheme about Sonny Boy, who liked to spend a whole lot of time in the kitchen, Jacob. And he says, here's what we're going to do. We're gonna, I'm going to cook your daddy's favorite meal. And then we're going to dress you in some of Isaac's clothes, you know, that smell of wild game in the outdoors. They don't smell of cinnamon and flour. So, um, and then we're going to, we're going to, and Jacob says, well, mama, you know, my, my brother, my brother, he's a hairy man. You know, when I'm smooth skinned, what are we? So she said, we got no problem. So they take sheep skins and they, they glue them to his hands and his arms uh, because daddy eventually is going to ask, hey, come here, boy, let me feel your hands. And so he feels his hand, oh, oh God, oh, okay. G gang, um, you, um, you're watching unfold in Genesis 27 one big old scam where the mama and her baby boy are going to pull the wool over the eyes of their husband and father who is almost already blind anyway. Now, 
Go back to Genesis 25 with me just real quick. This is one page back. And look at it again. This is what God said to Rebecca. Rebecca, you got two kids in your womb. Two nations are going to come out of you. Uh, but, Rebecca, you got to understand this. One shall be stronger than the other, and the older uh, shall serve the younger. <coughs> Rebecca, I'm going to overturn the laws of primogenitor here, and the younger is going to be put in front of the older. This is my intention, says God. This is my will. This is my stated intent for this thing to happen, <coughs> which is, by the way, referred to by Paul in Romans 9. So this is how I want things to happen, Rebecca. And then the scam. Chapter 27. Rebecca gets together with Jacob and says, Sonny boy, we're going to fool your daddy. <laughs> you watch this. And the point of all this, ladies and gentlemen, Is that God is going to accomplish his ends and his redemptive purposes and he will even use sin if necessary to accomplish it the lesson here is the utter invincibility of the promises of God and man's sin will not stand in his way and all of that is reflected in verse 20 of chapter 11 when Jacob is put in front of Esau, that order of the names. Now, just a little bit more. The heart of the matter, um, the, the, the author of Hebrews says that Isaac acted by faith. It says, you remember, by faith, Isaac invoked future blessing? By faith. All right, when? Where? How? When, 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 did, when did Isaac exercise faith in this story of deception? Where did we see faith in all of this darkness? Well, it starts in verse 30. Genesis 27, 30. And it's here where you find the turning point of the, of the whole story where for the first time light begins to break into this, this rather dark event. Watch it. Verse 30, chapter 27. As soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, that's the younger, when Jacob, the younger, you know, the deceiver, had scarcely gone from the presence of Isaac, his father, Esau, the older, his brother, came in from his hunting. He also prepared delicious food and brought it to his father, and he said to his father, let my father arise and eat of his son's game, that you may bless me. His father, Isaac, said to him, who are you? He answered, I'm your son, your firstborn Isaac, Esau. Now notice what happens next, ladies and gentlemen. Well, before that, at this moment, the scam is over. 
Isaac could have revoked all that he had said and done because he had been tricked. Um, the, 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 the scam of Jacob and Rebekah has given him a way out. And, by the way, Esau was his favorite. I like Esau better than I like Jacob. And his flesh would have been overjoyed to pronounce this patriarchal blessing on his favorite son Esau. And I can do that because, you know, they lied to me. They tricked me. That's a scam. But look at it, ladies and gentlemen. He doesn't do that. He takes nothing back. Instead, we're told in verse 33, then Isaac trembled very violently. The Hebrew is so interesting. The Hebrew is, he trembled with a great trembling greatly. Why? Why is he trembling? What's happening? What's going on here? Here's what's going on, ladies and gentlemen. That Isaac, for the first time in a long time, remembers what Yahweh had said to his wife in chapter 25, verse 23. What makes him tremble, what makes Isaac tremble, is at this point he realizes that God had outlined a future for these boys before these boys were even born. And that will is coming to pass right in front of him. And even that scam is not going to stop him. Even that scam is in accord with his promises because Isaac realizes that left to himself... I would have blessed Esau every time. I like Esau better. Left to myself. I would have sought to overturn the will of God. And then this seismic shock tears through Isaac's body as he realizes that he for some some time now has been opposing God's word. I had put, says Isaac, I had put my love of Esau ahead of the expressed intended will of God. And when he realizes that, he trembles with a great trembling. He knows that it's God that he's fighting against. And he accepts the defeat. Isaac doesn't curse Jacob as Esau had asked him to do. Isaac has realized how God has 
overruled his own wrongdoing. And this, ladies and gentlemen, is the faith alluded to in Hebrews 11.20. It's the faith that, that this verse 20 seizes upon. And it is not the blessing of Jacob that is the faith. It is that when he had the opportunity to take it back, he doesn't. Because he yields to what he knows God has said in chapter 25, verse 23. Look at verse 33. He says, I have blessed him. Yes, and he shall be blessed. Guys, um, Isaac, in the midst of all of this ugly sin, scam, deception, etc., etc., he realizes that what God had said to his wife in chapter 25 is now being unfolded. And that Jacob being moved in front was the way that God intended it. And so he yields himself denying his own flesh. I really would prefer Esau. But he exercises faith in something that God said that he doesn't particularly agree with nor understand. Because you see, faith is the righteous reflex to revelation. This is what God said. I wanted to bless Esau because I thought I knew better than God's word. And then this event happens, the scam. And so Isaac says to himself, (laughs) God had to use a scam. to talk some sense into me. And now I realize that nothing can thwart the redemptive purposes of God, even man's sin. And in verse 33 of chapter 11, he is convicted and exhilarated all at the same time. Just like his own daddy wanted to bless Ishmael instead of Isaac. And God said no to that. Now my own desires to bless Esau over Jacob are thwarted. 
and they are thwarted, God using man's sin, but his redemptive purposes being advanced because of the invincibility of the promises of God to accomplish redemption. Now, ladies and gentlemen, nowhere is that is that truth better seen than in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ at Calvary? There is no greater act of cosmic treason that exists anywhere that is bigger than the crucifixion. At Calvary and the crucifixion, there's sin everywhere. There's Rome's, you know, Pontius Pilate, who says, well, you know, I find no guilt in this man. You know, I'm washing my hands of all this stuff. And, uh, but by the way, y'all go crucify him anyway. Cosmic overturning of justice. And then there's the religious establishment of Israel, goading them by envy to shout for Barabbas, who, by the way, was a political insurrectionist. And then there was the twelve. Judas betrays him. Peter denies him. And the other ten run like scared puppies. It's a scene dripping with human sin and rebellion. All of which, wonder of wonders, is accomplishing the redemptive purposes of God. Can I read you that one more time? This is in Acts chapter 2, but you don't turn. Acts 2.22, it's right after Pentecost, the Holy Spirit's been poured out and Peter is preaching to this large large audience in the first post-Pentecostal sermon. And here's what he says. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God threw him in your midst as you yourselves know. This Jesus. Delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified, killed by the hands of lawless men. Your lawless deeds, your wicked hands, your evil opposition. cannot thwart him from accomplishing his redemptive plans. Ladies and gentlemen, this God will not be stopped. And he cannot be thwarted in his determination to save his people. And I only have one word for that. Hallelujah. Guys, my eternal safety is not based on how well I hold on to him, but on how well he holds on to me. 
and even my sin, which is disgusting. My sin, which I hate and grieves the Holy Spirit, even my sin. will not force him to let me go. My sin is awful. But nothing will separate me from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Why? Because this God is faithful to accomplish his redemptive purposes. Do you know that God? Is that God your Father in heaven? There is only one way that he becomes that. As we embrace his only provision for sin in Christ Jesus. And when Christ becomes my Savior, that Father becomes my Father who will never let me go. don't know of a gospel that can be more beautiful. Our Father, I, I do pray that you will make it beautiful to every set of eyes in the room. That if they have not yet seen it, that they might see it now. That sin, even my sin, will not stop you. That you are a God who, have de who has determined to save and nothing will prevent you from saving your people. Neither height nor depth, nor things created nor things uncreated will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus because you are faithful to your promises. Father, if you've brought people here this morning who have not yet met our Savior, would you open their eyes to see not this frightening, terrifying judge, but to see a God who has gone to unimaginable lengths to save sinners. This room is filled with those sinners, Father, and our sin grieves us as it grieves you but we glory in our safety. Safety wrought by a faithful God. We make our prayer, of course, in Jesus' name.